Listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding dying. Turn, if you will, in the blue book in front of you, maybe under the seat if you're sitting in the chairs in the back, the Bible to page 962. To just um, give you a bit of setting here, well, we have a theme today, don't we? The resurrection of Christ Jesus. And the book of uh, 1 Corinthians, written by the Apostle Paul, is addressing the Corinthian church that has quite a number of questions. And there are many uh, quarrels and disputes and divisions within this church. One of them addressed in Corinthians 15 is about the very resurrection of Christ, on which Christianity hangs, really. I mean, if you're visiting with us and you are still considering the things of Christianity, this is the quintessential question. Is Christ risen from the dead or not? And um, some of the the, uh, Jewish people were divided into two sects the Pharisees who believed in a resurrection and the Sadducees who did not. So this had carried into the Corinthian church as well. And in uh, Corinthians 15, two particular questions, that one, but also in what form might we be raised? What will we look like? What will our bodies appear like? And so on. So that's the context in which we pick up uh, 1 Corinthians Uh, 15, verse 50. I tell you, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding, in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain.
Let us pray. O Lord, we must have your grace to understand your word, uh, to concentrate on this word, to hide this word in our hearts, to meditate on it, for it to really change our lives, to change the way we think about you, to change the way we think about life and the future. Lord, we pray for your grace, your powerful word to work as we seek to proclaim that word. Oh, Lord, thank you that you're in our midst and you desire infinitely more to bless us than we could ever desire to be blessed of you. We seek you, Lord Jesus. Amen. The story of Scripture is starts early, this aspect of the story that I'm calling our royal destiny destroyed. A royal destiny destroyed. Many people think of death as a natural cycle. We've all seen the Lion King. It's the circle of life. Death and life and life and death. It's just a natural thing. Kubler-Ross and other death and dying writers try to urge us that death is just the natural state of things. Nothing to be feared, nothing to be alarmed about. It's just the natural course as we are human beings. Nothing could be further from the truth according to the word of the living God. Death is an interruption and a destruction of our royal destiny. When we die, we are literally separated, our souls from our body. We enter a bodiless state. And the scriptures do not regard that as normal or natural. Everything we know is connected to the body. The way we communicate with each other, the way we embrace each other, the way we know each other to experience community here is to have our bodies in the same place. That's why we laugh at uh, churches, or some of us do at least laugh at churches that are kind of drive-through churches, where you sit in your car isolated from everyone else and you hear on a speakerphone somebody speak. Because we believe in the body. We believe it's important to be in the same place with each other, to be together at a meal. Not just that you're eating across town and I'm here, but that we are together. The body is important. And the scriptures teach that the body is not just a shell, not this little shut-up box that I exist in for a while and then finally escape, like the Greeks and many modern people think, But the scriptures teach that the body is me. It's not all of me, but it is me. So no surprise that when God is going to rescue his people, why doesn't he just wait until we die and then finally we get out of that body? No. God himself, in the person of Jesus Christ, God the Son, becomes a real bodily human being. That that is an amazing event. 
God takes to himself human flesh. We celebrate this at Christmas, of course. He had a human body. He lived bodily as a human being, died bodily as a human being, and was raised bodily to a new form of life for human beings. Why did he do that in the body? Because the body as well as the soul must be redeemed. It must be rescued. We must be restored to our royal destiny, which has been destroyed. And even now, he has a human body that is greatly transformed, but it is a human body. And so that alone should tell us that if it was just a matter of finally getting rid of our bodies, getting free of our bodies so the real me can finally stretch out unhindered by this prison, then why would God take to himself a body, die in it, and raise it to a new condition of power and splendor? What is it with the body? Why did he do that? So God is not, as he says earlier in this same letter, he's not against the body. God is not anti-body. He made us soul and body and will rescue us soul and body. And that's why the whole New Testament is focused not so much on our dying and being with the Lord, though a few texts refer to that, mainly it focuses on his coming again and the transformation of our bodies in that day, as we read. Those were critical passages for New Testament believers, and it fixed their hope on the future. Think about a butterfly caterpillar, an eating machine born about the size, of, an egg is about the size of a head of a pen. And the first little caterpillar is about the size of a head of a pen. And sometimes they expand in a few weeks a thousand times that big because they just eat everything in sight. And so the little pinhead becomes a two-inch worm in, a, in, in no time. And he, he breaks out of his skin several times in that process, you know. And then finally we know he forms a chrysalis. Uh, that's taken from the Greek word that means gold because uh, the crows, the common crow butterfly common to that area, uh, looked like a shiny piece of gold when it formed its uh, chrysalis. So the chrysalis is formed, and you know what happens there, of course, that uh, he's disassembled as a, as a caterpillar and reassembled in a kind of organic soup into a butterfly. And the interesting thing about butterflies is they don't really do much after that except lay eggs and mate, and some of them only live a few weeks. Some of them don't even eat after that. But they get to this final glorious stage, and we get the, the joy of seeing them for that brief time as butterflies. Now, what would happen, though, if a butterfly, instead of making it to the chrysalis stage. And in a sense, there's a kind of death to the caterpillar, but in order for it to become a butterfly, what would it be like if the caterpillar was just simply eaten by a bird? That's quite a different thing. End of story, no chrysalis, no butterfly, no being part of future butterflies. And if every caterpillar were eaten, there would be no more butterflies. That's a death of a different kind. That's an interruption of its final destiny, its glorious transformation into a butterfly. 
And it's a wonderful picture of what has happened to us by sin. There's been an interruption into our destiny to be transformed into the glorious beings that we were intended to be. Romans 3.23 says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, one interpretation of this is that we've fallen short of imaging God. We fall short of being like God. We're very unlike God in his other-centered love. We're not like that, and so we fall short of his glory. But another one that I favor is that we have fallen short of entering into the glory of God. We've sinned and lost the destiny of being transformed into that glorious condition, that final condition which was our original destiny. And so now we will not undergo by nature that monumental change into our final, what could be called superhuman stage, the butterfly stage of humanity. So you see, death is not a natural thing. It cuts us off from entering into that glory. It separates us from our body. Our body grows old and finally just decrepit and weak, and it dies a very pathetic thing. And that's it in judgment. That's it apart from God entering into this world. And so dying and death are emergency indicators of our judgment. Romans 5 says, all have sinned, therefore all die. Death is the emergency indicator. Death reigns. Death owns the field. Nobody can escape it. Nobody can overcome it. No matter how many surgeries, no matter how much medicine... No matter how much research, we will all succumb to death. And so you see, in Christ coming to earth, he was on a mission to restore us us to this glorious destiny. He lives, he dies, and he's raised again to enter into a new form of life. A resurrected body. And learn from that. That's what he was doing for us to get us to that stage of resurrection. That's the whole point of his coming, is to bring us into the resurrected state, to restore us to our royal destiny, so that now we can eventually enter into what we could call that supernatural glory of God. But... Our royal destiny now restored. Let's, that's what this passage is talking about. Because he says in here, we shall not all sleep. That is, verse 51, we shall not all be dead in that day, but we'll all be changed. We saw it in Thessalonians that he says, we, we're not going to go ahead of those who have already died. They're going to come with Jesus. Their bodies will be raised first. They will experience this glorious transformation first. Then we stand in line and, so to speak, and we are changed second. But, and you get a feel for that right here because he says, we shall not all change, uh, not all be asleep, but we shall all be changed. And then he gives it, 
in the next verse this way, the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. The idea of the dead being raised and then we who are alive being changed. Now, this idea of resurrection was uh, highly offensive to the Greeks because they viewed the body and the material world as basically evil and certainly temporary. The eternal state was the spiritual state. The spirit and soul are perfect and permanent. They believed in what would be called the immortality of the soul. And so it has this temporary association with this kind of dungeon of a body, this tied-down container for which it will eventually escape and live in freedom forever. So we can just die off and get rid of this body, then we can fly free as free spirits, so to speak. We even use that phrase, don't we? And so, unlike God, who made the body on purpose and who actually took on flesh to rescue us soul and body, the Greeks didn't value the body whatsoever. And we could get into what that meant in terms of the way they lived, but that's not the point this morning. They also, and this is really the point of what Paul's been talking about in this latter part of this chapter, they couldn't imagine what is it going to look like. I mean, what is the resurrection? They couldn't imagine it being anything good. And, of course, in some forms of imagining it, it doesn't sound too good. You imagine an older person, as I've known several and had some of my own relatives to get so old, it was this condition in which their skin was literally just almost coming off their body. And they had sores everywhere, and they couldn't help but get more, and couldn't hear, they couldn't see, uh, they could hardly get out of bed then you think, well, if they died, and then what if you just came back and made them alive again? You know, 93-year-old decrepit man. Now he's alive. Well, that, that's not good. What purpose would that be? He can, and he'll always be alive, just like that. No. What? what? No. You, the idea, of course, of being a spirit free from that body. You know, we, we even have that sense. Oh, good. His suffering's over. He's out. He's away from that body that was dying. So resuscitating a corpse is not a very pleasant. It's the stuff of horror movies. Are these going to be zombies walking around? Are they still going to bear the effects of their death? You know, and what, what are resurrected bodies going to look? That was really the kind of question they had. They couldn't imagine what could be good about a dying body coming back? And it's interesting in our modern day how uh, the ideas of life afterwards, sometimes it's like whatever state you're in, you're fixed like that forever. For instance, in the movie The Others, Nicole Kidman, uh, and I give it away if you haven't seen it, but um, she is in her, she's died and she and her two children also, her, her two children died also, and they're living in this house, and they don't even know they're dead. And yet, they died as children, they continue as children. She died as a mom, she continues as a mom. So is that it? Like, if I die at 38, I, mean, I might rather die at 38 than 98, you know? If I'm going to stay that way forever... I mean, the thing is, is die with a good time. You know, don't, don't wait too late because that's going to be it forever after that. You know, it, it, you can see how, what is it really? And, and then the struggle to try to grasp what happens after life, like that movie or uh, The Sixth Sense or even Ghost, it's like 
somehow they have another body, but it's not really their body, and somehow they have the same clothes on. You know, we just struggle with what is going to happen there. We can't imagine a life that doesn't have a body. We just picture it with bodies instead of picturing it in a way we can't, really. What is a soul? What is a bodiless soul, a spirit? Well, in Scripture, that's not a condition that's good, ultimately. It is not good because we're made soul and body. We've been torn from our bodies in death. And there must be a restoration so that we're complete and glorious human beings as God made us to be soul and body. And that's why the critical nature of the resurrection. And even the resurrection of Lazarus was not what we're talking about. Lazarus was just brought back and apparently made like Lazarus had been. Whatever age he was, whatever conditions he had, he probably still had them, except that he didn't have a sickness unto death. But uh, if he was nearsighted, he probably was still nearsighted. Uh, If he had a limp, he probably still had a limp. It's the same Lazarus. The Jairus' daughter, she was probably the same age, had the same look, same body that she passed away in, except now she's not sick. That's not what Paul's talking about. And he drives this home in the verses before this. He gives analogies. He gives analogies uh, in plant life. He talks about seeds becoming different plants. And he, he talks about how, look what God can do. Here's a seed, and you can't even imagine what the plant's going to be. You can't say if you had 10 seeds, you'd never seen them. You're not going to pick one up and say, oh, that's an oak tree. I could, look, it's, it's, a, it's a live oak. I can tell by the way the seed, you can't tell. Or this is a, this is a plant that's going to produce yellow, no, kind of light yellow. You can't do that from a seed. You don't know what it's going to produce. And you can't imagine the beauty that will come or the fruit that will come. Or like across the street from us, this uh, live oak tree that goes from half of this yard to half of this yard in addition to its own yard. It's just beautiful. How could you tell? And then he describes the differences in all forms and shapes that God has made in this world. You can imagine God from the same substance making a seashell or a fawn or a penguin or an oak tree. And he uses the same four elements we've now discovered. So God is capable of incredible creativity and power when it comes to making different things. That's Paul's point. And then he even says the the glory of the heavenly things is different from the glory on the earth. Look at the difference in a piece of clay and the sun. God can make both of those. Don't think then that God is not capable of making a resurrection body that is so glorious, that is so full of splendor and imaginativeness from God that you could hardly grasp what it's going to be. That's the point that Paul is making in the verses right before this. That there is a capability in God to create something beyond our imagination. And yet, as he talks about the seed and the plant, there's continuity. He says in our very passage, uh, this body, you see, this body must take on, this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. And so it's not that 
This is pushed aside. The seed is actually the same organism as the tree. The caterpillar is the same organism as the butterfly. And so it's really me in a glorious continuity that passes into the next life, this resurrected life. But it's magnificently different. And it has capabilities, as he describes it, of a a body of splendor, a body of strength. He even describes it in one uh, passage earlier here. It's born a natural body or sown a natural body, and it's reaped a spiritual body. Now, this doesn't mean spiritual as opposed to material. Uh, Maybe an analogy would help if... You take three blocks of marble. You could say, these are natural pieces of marble. Then you look over here, and there's the seated Moses. There's the Pieta, the uh, suffering Christ in the lap of Mary. And there is the statue of David. And you know what's happened is Michelangelo got a hold of those three blocks of marble, right? There were three natural blocks of marble, Now they've been raised. They've been remade into these glorious blocks of marble. And so you might say that they've been, they're they're now Michelangelo, okay? Michelangelo has got his hands on them and he's transformed them. That's the point of this passage. We were so natural beings, but the Holy Spirit is going to get a hold of us. And then we'll be Michelangelo, we'll be spiritual. But it's not going to be an earthly man as brilliant as he was. It's going to be the maker of heaven and earth, the one who hovered over the waters in the original creation, the one of whom it is said in the Psalms that he gives life to all things, the very one that raised Christ from the dead. He's the one that transforms us into a new magnificence and strength and splendor. And the heart of this, what Ambrose calls the blossom of the resurrection. Imagine a whole field of tulips and some uh, crazy guy has gone off and nipped every one of them in the bud and says, look at this beautiful green field I've made. You think... No, that was meant to be a glorious field of color. And so for us not to finally uh, open up and blossom fully as to what God, how God has made us and what our destiny as, as his royal beings would be is a tragedy. Well, the heart of it, the heart of it is that we are made holy in that day. We are made Glorious in the sense that we are made like the character of God himself. You get some of that from this passage when he says that this perishable shall be put on the imperishable. And the word that is used also is corrupt, putting on incorrupt, uh, that, that the what was corrupt is now incorruptible. This word corrupt has to do with decay. It has to do with destruction. It has to do even with mutilation, being marred and spoiled, perverted. And so the contrast is that we're transformed from beings who are fixed upon ourselves 
beings who are wasting our lives by living for me and not for God's glory and not for other people, that we are transformed completely and perfectly in that last day to be exactly like God in our capacity to give ourselves away to each other. That's what makes heaven so glorious, is that our love is perfected in that day. Our bodies are incapable of doing anything but serving and giving ourselves away to one another. And every person you meet is an utter delight to you. And you can't wait to be with them again, as it were, and they can't with you. Because we're perfected in love. Our glory is the glory of God. Earlier, he speaks of the glory of God being found in the face of Christ. Why does he put it that way? It's that the glory of God is seen primarily in the self-giving God in the person of Christ. That's where his glory most fully shows itself, in the self-giving face of Christ. If you want to see the glory of God, look to the face of Jesus Christ. And he says, we are going to be made like him in glory. But I want to end with this one word before we go. We're not touching on everything in this passage, but one thing we must, must point out. And it comes as an oddity when you're, in fact, the first times I read this passage at funerals, I would almost want to leave out verses, especially verse 6. Because you've got all of this glorious statement about the change that's going to occur. The perishable puts on the imperishable. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? Sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. Well, and do you know there's uh, some commentators around the turn of the last century said this obviously was put in by somebody. It just doesn't belong here. Even though there's no evidence in the manuscripts that anybody messed with this, they just thought this doesn't fit. Somebody messed up. But for Paul, this was critical to his whole point. It was critical. And it points out that to deal with death, he had to deal with sin or there'd be no dealing with death. Because the sting of death, the horror of death, is because of our sin. It's because death is connected with God's judgment. Because in our sin, we have sought good without reference to God. We've sought to live independent of Him, ignoring His will, ignoring His authority and His goodness, living on our own terms. And so, as we talked about last Thursday night, we are kind of an implosion, a walking implosions, isolating ourselves, and finally isolating ourselves from God himself in the final judgment. You see, sin, as we saw in Romans 3, all have sinned and they therefore are judged so that we do not receive the final glory of God. Our sin means that we are judged by God. It, mean, it is our punishment. Uh, death is our punishment for sin. But death is not just physical death. It's being cut off from God completely. Now, we saw recently, again, the movie Nanny McPhee. 
Uh, Emma Thompson does a wonderful job of the nanny who comes with her little tooth sticking out and she's got some magical powers. And when she first gets there that night, the kids are wreaking havoc in the kitchen. They're tearing as many things up as they can. I mean, systematically, purposefully, they're trying to tear the whole kitchen up. She comes in and tells them, you must go to bed. And they just laugh at her because they've gotten rid of 17 nannies in a row. So they're going to get rid of Nanny McPhee. She's, and plus, she's got warts on her face and this tooth sticking out. She's ridiculous. Well, Nanny's standing there, and she, McPhee, and she pops her, her walking stick on the floor and sparks. You know, not only in the room, but they come outside, and you see them go outside of the house into the fields, and you think, uh-oh. <laughs> The kids are in for it. So you might think she would stop them from that. No, she allows them to do it, and yet she won't allow them to stop it. You want to play? You're going to play. And so they start doing it faster and faster, and they start getting scared because they can't stop it. And they were were using this little catapult to throw certain vegetables, and they were about to put the baby in the catapult, and they can't stop themselves. And she forces them finally to say, please, Nanny McPhee. And then, so cute, she comes to the dad that night. She says, they've learned the first lesson to say please. So such goes the uh, story. Well, interestingly, the next morning, the next morning they wake up and they're not going to get out of bed. She says, out of bed, we've got a full day schedule and they've got white on their face, white powder and red splotches. Oh, we're sick, Nanny McVee. We can't get out of bed. (laughs) You know, that kind of thing. She says, oh, you're sick, are you? Yes. Okay, then you will stay in bed today. And they laugh and giggle and they, she leaves. And then suddenly they try to get out of bed. They can't get out of bed. And then they feel sick. And then they have to eat this gurgling, thick, black, horrible stuff. And you're cringing at the thought. She gives them exactly what they want. You want to stay in bed? You can stay in bed today. But in each case, of course, what they wanted didn't turn out to be what they thought it was going to be. And dear friends, I say this with a lot of feeling in my heart. If you want to be independent of God, you don't want his authority over your life. You don't want his word. You don't want fellowship with him. You don't want to worship him and love him and enjoy him and trust him. Then in the final day of judgment, you'll get just what you want. You will be cut off from God. You won't have him anymore. And right now, you, you have him more than you think. You have him because you, he gives you food and laughter and friends and work and TV and music and games and toys and books and houses and cars and comfortable beds and hot showers and clouds and trees and flowers and seashores and mountains and penguins and tigers and butterflies. But in that day, you will not have him at all. And you will have none of his goodness. You will have nothing good from him ever because you've said with your life, I do not want you. And in the end, he finally gives you the Burger King motto with a tragic twist. 
have it your way. That's why C.S. Lewis said, hell is always locked from the inside. His way of pointing out that we choose separation from God. And so our way of separation from God is a way that ends in death. The awful sting of death is sin. And the law, which is good and pure and just causes us to love God and love others with all of our heart, just comes to us and shows us just how little we do it. And that's why the law is such a power for sin. It just keeps pointing it out, keeps bringing judgment that we're not like that. But dear friends, Paul begins this chapter and he says in verse 3 that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And it says later, if he's not raised, you're still in your sins. The resurrection is God's indicator, God's signal. He has died for sins. He paid for sins, punishment, and I will forgive anybody. I will bring you to the same condition as my own son. I will join you to him and you will share his destiny of the new glorious can we say it, butterfly existence. And of course, then we're not going to live for a few weeks. (laughs) We live forever, forever and ever in the new glorious condition that Christ alone has won us. He is your only hope for the forgiveness of sins and his resurrection is God's signal. This is the only way but a sure way that your sins can be forgiven and you can overcome death in the final day. Will you not entrust your life to this God who came to earth to accomplish this for sinners? Let us pray. Oh, gracious God, glorious, glorious are you to take flesh upon yourself for we, for us sinners who had turned our backs upon you, who had said basically, we do not want you. Even then you sent your son, even then, O son of God, you took flesh upon yourself to bear our sin in the flesh, to die and then be raised in the flesh so that we, by your grace, could overcome death so that we could pass through death and enter into everlasting life through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Lord, because of your resurrection, we can know that our sins will be forgiven. And if there is no resurrection, there is no forgiveness for your death was just another meaningless death. But you were raised. And it's the clarion call. The the flag has been thrown out. Oh, Lord, thank you. And here is salvation. Here is rescue. Here is new life. Here is fellowship with God. Here is life forever. We praise you, almighty God, for the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of sins. And Lord, if there is any here any who has been living this way of saying, I'm going to live my life the way I want to without regard to his word, without regard to prayer, without regard to fellowship with him or his people. Oh, Lord, may their hearts even now be broken 
And may they give themselves freely and fully into the hands of Jesus Christ. It is in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. Jesus, my Lord, my life, my light, oh, come with blissful rain, break radiant through the shades of night, and chase my fears away. Won't you chase my fears away? Then shall my soul with rapture trace the wonders of thy love.